0: Do I have amplification? Okay, good. Have you ever had to reboot your computer? Have you ever had to reinstall the operating system? Isn't that a pain in the neck? You have this thing that's working okay, and then all of a sudden it starts to lose its mind, and at that point you finally realize, oh, it's just a machine, it's really not the miracle box I thought it was, and it's now broken, and, and it's dysfunctional, if functional at all, and for my, I have an Apple computer, and in Apple, there's a little thing that spins around, it's a little color-looking sort of pinwheel thing, and people who have apples call this thing the pinwheel of death. Cause it will just sit and spin on your screen, sometimes for hours on end. Apples are supposed to be this amazing product that doesn't have problems. If you have a Windows machine and you're having problems, do not believe the lies. All computers are just machines and they all have problems. Now I just, I just desecrated the lives of a whole bunch of Apple evangelists. My apologies but you all know in your secret heart of hearts it's true. One of the interesting things that we come across in Scripture is that God regularly reboots Israel's faith and at times has to completely reinstall the operating system. Is that, a, is that a current enough idea for it to work in your head a little bit? Think back to the, to the, the moment when they're, he's preparing them to come out of Egypt. The exodus from Egypt is a full operating system reinstallation process, right? Right? They had been in Egypt for 400 years. Their operating system had been corrupted by all the culture around them and the religious systems around them. And they had bits and pieces of junk from all kinds of locations, from people who passed through town. And from just being in the presence of the entire different system that the Egyptians use. The Egyptians worship the, the river. They worship bugs and frogs and the sun and the Pharaoh and all kinds of things. So what does God do? When you are going to reinstall an operating system, you first have to delete everything else. Because if you try reinstalling on top of the old one, you end up with more corruption and more little spinning pinwheels of death. So you have to uninstall everything and then reinstall the new system. God systematically uninstalls the corruption of the Egyptian system from his people so that he can start fresh. And it takes a couple of years of pinwheels before they finally sort of get traction on this new system. When you read through Exodus next time, think of it as the deletion of an operating system and the reinstallation of a new operating system. It'll help make it a lot clearer for the modern mind. When you arrive in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is doing a full operating system reinstallation took me six months of thinking about this passage before I realized this is this is how to explain this. The passage really, chapter 5 could actually start in chapter 4, because right before this, at the end of chapter 4, you get this picture of what's going on. It says, Jesus began to teach in all the synagogues and to heal the sick and cleanse people. And it just gives a little description of what's going on. And then it says this, and he began to preach the gospel, the good news about the kingdom of God. Multitudes of people are gathering. It describes them coming from Jerusalem and Judea and Decapolis, all around the region of Galilee and beyond. Jerusalem, seventy miles away, so people are traveling a great distance to be there to see Jesus, to hear what He's saying, and mostly, I think, probably to be healed. And the the, the chapter that we're, we we start the Sermon on the Mount with, Chapter Five, says Jesus seeing the large crowds so he sees the gathering of masses of people and when he sees these large crowds he has compassion on them and then he begins a process of uninstalling the system and reinstalling the new one so we're going to do a recap of the un- of the uninstalling process quick one relatively preacher quick And then focus on the installation of the new system. Okay? So it's the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to find it in your Bible or on your device, it's Luke, or it's uh, Matthew chapter 5 where we're starting. I'm not going to read a bunch of text. I'm going to actually skip through it pretty quickly. So you may want to just have it open so you can kind of follow along and catch the pieces that are there underlying all of this. But here's what happens. Like Moses, intentionally like Moses, like Moses, intentionally like Moses, he goes up on the mountain. As the crowd is gathered and watching, he acts specifically like Moses. He goes up on the mountain and then he sits down like a king addressing his court and the disciples, the court gather close in everyone else there the multitudes everybody else is just a listener to the instructions being given to the disciples the sermon's really being preached to just 12 people and the masses are just listening in and jesus begins to to uninstall what they think they understand he begins with the beatitudes the first one it's awesome when you're spiritually poor. It's awesome to be spiritually poor because then you turn to God and you receive the kingdom. It's amazing. It's so cool. Well, the normal understanding was that if you had true spiritual poverty, you were despised by God. So you see the, see the extraction of one. Do you see the extraction of a way of thinking? Now, he does this throughout the Beatitudes. And if you go through the Beatitudes and think of them as extracting an opinion about someone and reinserting a different opinion, it helps to get some traction on understanding them. He's saying, look, I am, I am subtracting your understanding about these people. People in true spiritual poverty, people that everybody recognizes do not have their spiritual act together. It's awesome to be in that place when you turn to God. Because when you turn to God, you're empty of your own expectations and you're really listening just for what God has for you. Those kind of people inherit the kingdom of heaven. Extract a bit of the operating system. Install a new piece. I'm going to skip through the Beatitudes. We can spend the rest of the day just on them. I want to skip now on down. Jesus begins to talk to them about their activities. What they're doing. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You know the description. This is the light of mine, right? What do you do with your light? Let it shine. You let it shine. Where do you put it? On a lampstand, not under a? bushel, right? It took a little bit, but you remembered the song eventually. Okay? So he then starts to redirect their understanding of what this is all about. He says, do the right thing so that those who see you will glorify your Father in heaven. Who's getting the attention when you're doing the right thing? God is. Normally you would do the right thing as a testimony to your fellow man Of how righteous you were. I am awesome. Watch me. I am so spiritual. Birds flock around me. (laughs) Little children walk up and want to touch me. Because I am just that amazing. Jesus said, no, this, this isn't about you. This focus isn't about you. This is about your pointing people to your heavenly Father, this is about directing the attention to God. Let everybody see your good works, so that they might glorify your Father in heaven. Let them see that you're doing the right thing, not because it's about you, but because it's about God. Uninstalling a self-aggrandizing religion, reinstalling the intent of the religion to point people to God. Start to get it. See how it's pro- see the process now. We'll cover a couple more of these. Normally, the Pharisees are the pinnacle of righteousness. We mentioned this last week. They are the superstars of righteousness. These are all stars of all stars in righteous behavior. These are the guys. These are the best. These are amazing. And they are the best practices of of righteousness in Israel. And Jesus then turns to these 12 guys who are by now kind of disturbed and confused. And the crowd's like, what in the world is going on? And the little pinwheel of, of death is spinning in all of their heads. And they don't know what's happening. If you, for those of you who are Windows people, it's the little time thing that's slowly dripping sand forever and ever and ever. And he says, if you are going to be my disciples, your righteousness must be greater than that of the Pharisees and the scribes. As far as they understand it, a bunch of ordinary guys, Jesus just put righteousness completely out of reach. Jesus put righteousness completely out of reach intentionally. And He continues to. Normally, the laws of Moses are broken down into hundreds of little bite-sized pieces. Now understand why this is happening. This is a great plan. The Pharisees and scribes have figured out how to get this whole thing, the whole big righteousness elephant into bite-sized pieces so that you can eat this elephant one bite at a time. They're, they're going to start chewing on these little pieces, doing bits and pieces and bits and pieces and bits and pieces until voila, they're doing everything right. Perfect. Perfect. Remember, the Apostle Paul thought himself to be a perfect representative of God when he was a Pharisee. He really thought he got this. He really thought he understood it. This is why. Because righteousness was broken down into tiny little bits of behavioral information. You want to be righteous? Well, then don't carry your handkerchief on the Sabbath. Sew it into the sleeve of your shirt. Then you're no longer bearing a burden on the Sabbath because it's part of your clothing. And that's where mom and dad, this started. Right? You've seen it. It leaves a streak all the way across their face. The picture, the question was, what is it to break the Sabbath? The scribes went to work trying to explain it in ways that could be attainable for the individual. That's what they were trying to do. Make, make perfection attainable for anyone. Make, make behavioral righteousness attainable for anyone. And so they broke off this little piece and said, here's a piece, here's a question. How much is too much cloth for me to carry around? Well, it's the weight of your handkerchief. Well, what if my nose is running? Well, just sew it into your sleeve. Then you're not carrying it. It's part of your clothes. Ah, okay. Easy. Perfect. I could do that. And that's the point. The Pharisees wanted to make the laws of Moses in the lives of the people come out to, well, I could do that. Well, I, yeah, I could do that. Don't murder anybody. Okay, well, I could do that. Is it okay if I hate them? Oh, sure, the Romans are here. You've got to hate those guys. They're evil. They're awful. They're terrible. Yeah, sure, you can hate them. Is it okay if I'm angry with them? Yeah, it's okay. If you're, just don't kill them. That's it. That's all God wants of you in this place is to not actually take their life. And so they could roam around being angry and, and vicious and mean and thought, in their thought life and maybe even in their conversations with each other as long as they didn't actually kill anybody. They could do that. And they had taken this exalting law of God, this amazing thing God was calling them to, these precepts of life and behavior, and they had shrunken them down. Now, it took a lot of shrinking, and there were lots of pieces, but they had gotten it down to bite-sized pieces. People could do it. And Jesus does just the opposite. He elevates the Mosaic law even above what Moses was saying. He, He raises the standard so high that every single Person listening to him said, I don't know if I could ever do that. And he wraps the whole discussion with a final bow. And the final bow is a big one. It's big, red, and bold. And it has your name on it. It has my name on it. And he says, here's what your standard is. Here's what you're shooting for to be perfect like God. Now, I I need you to recognize the illogic in that. Can the created... Be the creator. So do you see what Jesus just did? He pushed it, and he pushed it, and he pushed it, and he pushed it so far out of reach that they only had one hope. The miraculous intervention of God. Do you understand? We take this passage and we abuse it we pull it, rip it out of its context. He says, love your enemies and therefore you will be like God. The standard he's asking you for is that your love for your fellow man. Jews were only, only responsible to love other Jews. Pharisees were only responsible to love other, other Jews. And so, the, actually, mostly only other Pharisees. They were, they could despise anybody else they wanted to. And God says, no, 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 the standard is to love like God loves. Love those who hate you, persecute you, who are your devout enemies. That's the standard. I'm holding you to. Everybody in the crowd by this point, they just don't know what to do. Because it was all making sense to them. And the bits and pieces were, they were hard to remember, but they were bits and pieces. They were small bites that you could take. And you could perform your righteousness in a way that made sense and was easy. And the easy, however, was not transformative. Because sewing your handkerchief into your sleeve relieved you of breaking the Sabbath, but it didn't teach you about resting in God. And if you missed that the Sabbath was about resting in the authority and having faith in God, then you missed it completely and you're worried about your handkerchief. So, Jesus I'm sure he wore a tie that day, (laughs) doesn't stop there. He strides even further into their life. He starts to talk about religious practice. Now, religious practice, certain pious practices were outside the norms of the law, weren't required of the law, but they were considered to be appropriate for believers to do. First century believers... 21st century believers. It doesn't matter. It's been normative for believers to have certain kinds of behavior, certain kinds of practice. And so in their day, you were doing good deeds. The, the primary ones, prayer, fasting, and giving alms to the poor. Those were the big, the big ones. Those were the three pillars of, of being pious. The, the pious did these things. The pious prayed. The pious fasted. And the pious gave alms to the poor. Well, the thing was, the pious did it to demonstrate to other people how pious they were. It was awesome for them. They literally would blow trumpets. They would literally blow trumpets before they gave an offering. They literally would blow trumpets to gather people's attention. They would smear their faces with ashes. They would mess up their hair and they would tear their clothes when they were fasting. So everybody would know they were fasting. They would stop in the middle of the street to pray so they could block traffic. So everybody know they were praying. Normally you did your good deeds so people would notice them. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Good deeds lose their power to change your values when you do them to gain attention. When you do them to gain attention, all you get is attention. When you do them to be a blessing to someone else, when you do them as an act of 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 regular contact with God, when you do them to set aside a time to really concentrate on your relationship with God, then they have transformational power. You get what's happening. Do you see how he's shifting things? Do you see the changes that he's making? Now the new operating system gets real straight. In my computer, this is where the little page pops up after everything looks like it's installed. and It tells you, look at all the wonderful things we've just installed in your computer and more ways we can control your life. Every time I install something new on my computer, that's what I think. Oh, look, now they're going to do something else to take care of my life. Read Control. So the new operating system comes pretty straight. And this was where we ended last week. See, wasn't this quick? We got through that in a few minutes. Aim your life at achieving things that are of heavenly value. New operating system says, okay, now here's how. Here's what we've taken around. We've readjusted this old operating system. Here are the new elements of the operating system. Aim at doing things that are of heavenly value. Focus on things that are outside earthly norms and things that are of heavenly value. Jesus says it in this way, lay up treasures in heaven, lay up treasures in heaven. But he has a really important why, because where your treasures are, there your heart follows. Where your treasures are, there your heart will follow. We, we've we been doing all sorts of things, gymnastics, to try to make sure everybody has some part in the new building that we're building. We've had, we had uh, dollar month, which we're probably going to do again. We're going we're to bring a buck month again. We've had we have a change thing in the back to empty the change out of your ashtray in your car because you don't smoke you have nothing else used for that ashtray you put it in that put it the change in that thing back there and it's just collecting a little bit here and there so that we all have a piece of that all have an investment in that because that treasure that investment carries our heart with it you get it where your treasure is there your heart is also now think about this. This is a very important 21st century principle. It was not just important there. It's very important here. The Pharisees, the priests, the scribes, the Sadducees, these are the wealthiest people in Israel. And they have laid up a lot of treasure on the planet. They have actually, as Jesus would later describe, they have stolen widows' houses in the name of God. They have done all sorts of things that are inappropriate and they've laid up great deals of treasure. And he says, no, 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 no. Finding ways to hold treasure here is the wrong point. Lay up treasure in heaven. Focus your investments on the kingdom. Focus your investment on God. Focus on that and your heart will follow it. Your heart will follow it. He says, this I think is, is directly connected to the previous one. He says, the eyes are the gateway to your heart. Focus them on good things. Focus them on good things. Ever gotten in the habit of watching some particular news thing or, or listening to some particularly contentious person on the radio? And I don't, and like I said before, it doesn't matter which side you listen to. You could be listening to NPR, CNN, Fox, Sean Hannity. It doesn't matter. You, you pick your person, but you find somebody who continually feeds into your life negative commentary. Negative commentary about the world, negative commentary about others. It doesn't matter. This feeding negative commentary to you, what happens to you? That negativity becomes my own. Because as that, as I begin to focus my attention on those things, what gets my attention gets me right. And as I begin to focus my attention on negative things, on the dark side of, sides of things, if I begin to focus my attention on the negative all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time I become negative. Now, I. I I tell you, it's easy for me. It's easy for me. I blame college. (laughs) Because you know, in college, the best thing you could do is say something negative about the subject that the professor gave you to say to talk about. So your paper has to come off saying, "Well, this, you know, you know, this problem is massively unsolvable, and you know, wise people don't even attempt." But because you've assigned me to talk about this, we'll we'll talk about those who have had the most really significant answers to an unsolvable problem. Professors love that kind of tarnish. When we spend our time focusing on the negative, it gets us. You spend your time focusing on the negative about your spouse, and your marriage will become dark. You spend your time focusing on the negative about your children, And your heart for your children will become hard. He says, look, don't focus on darkness because it will darken your insides. Your whole life will become darkened. This is pretty practical stuff for 21st century Americans. What's getting your attention today? What's getting your focus Is your is your focus right now on how bad somebody else is? Is your focus on a bunch of negative stuff? Are you feeding your brain on things you shouldn't be watching? That you know when you turn them on. Oh man, I shouldn't watch this. This is trash. And you say it to yourself kind of with that smile on your face. It's like, yeah, I shouldn't be doing this. Because if you say it with a straight face, you'll stop. As humans, we need to recognize that we are vulnerable, and what we focus on changes us. What is it that the apostle Paul will say in Philippians, whatever, whatever things are good and righteousness and good report, etc., etc. Think on these things. When you focus on the light, light fills your life. Make sense? Do you see Jesus rebooting things now? Do you see him? the information is being reinstalled in a different direction? He's taking the disciples in a new direction and a new understanding of how they're going to live their lives. Do not fall in love with your possessions. This is the the love of money. The the term, I put the Greek term up here, mammonas, gets directly transliterated in some of your Bibles, mammon. You can't serve God in mammon. Well, how many of you have mammon laying around your house? Right? None of us. We don't know what mammon is. Serve God and mammon. We don't know what that is. The Greek term is not really talking about just money. And that's how it also gets translated. Most translators just put money in there. The Greek term really is aimed at your possessions. At all of your stuff. It's not just your money. It's not just your couch or your car or your house. It's all of your stuff. It says you can't fall in love with your stuff. You can't fall in love with your stuff. Because if you fall in love with your stuff, you lose the primary reason for being on the planet, and that is to fall in love with God. If we get so caught up in our stuff, we lose what God has really called us to. It's a funny thing. Brent and I have traveled, some of you have traveled into third world countries. It's amazing how disruptive that is. I actually heard Mark talking about that this week and it was, I was so resonating with what he said. It's amazing how disruptive it is to go to a third world country and find somebody living in a tin shack or a mud hut who has more than you do. Because they're just joyful about life. They're just happy with what's going on. They're positive about the things that are going on around them. And you're looking at their life and saying, this makes no sense to me. I have a house full of stuff. I got so much stuff, my garage is overflowing and there's no room for my car or my garage. That's a bad experience right there. And I'm not as happy as this person who's living on the edge of poverty all the time. Now, Jesus is not calling for you to live on the edge of poverty. He's calling for you to get an assessment process. He's not saying don't have stuff. He's saying don't fall in love with stuff. He's not saying you have to all live under a bridge. No, he's saying don't let your stuff have you. You have stuff, but it doesn't own you. Hold it in an open hand. When you hold it in an open hand, it can slip out when someone else needs it. Hold it in an open hand. Don't fall in love with your possessions. You can't serve both God and your stuff. There's a great image of this. I've shared it with some of you before. It only really comes clear in the King James Version. There's a great picture of this with Saul, when the Israelites are calling Saul to be their king. If you remember the story, it's the first time they're going to have a king, and they pick this really tall, strong, healthy-looking dude. He's a He's a head taller than everybody else, which should inform your story about David and Goliath. He's a head taller than everybody else. So they pick the basketball player as their king, and he doesn't want to be the king. And he's frightened of it. And the King James, it's the only place that describes it this way. The others translate it a little bit differently, but it's a great picture of us in this moment. He says, when they, the the, the the yeah, the text says, when they came to look for Saul, they couldn't find him because he was hiding in his stuff. Sometimes we lose our identity being overwhelmed by our stuff. Jesus says, you can't fall in love with your possessions. You can't let that be the reason you exist. Getting more stuff just gets to be a pain in the neck. And then your garage gets full. You have to buy a bigger house because you have too much stuff for your little house. You have plenty of bedrooms and bathrooms, but you don't have room for your stuff. See? Therefore, now having said all of that, therefore, don't worry about your life and your stuff. Trust your heavenly Father he knows that you need all these things. We miss this, pe- this in this passage. It goes from 25 to 32. And it's describing where your priorities should be. And it's, it's describing where those, what you should be not worried about your things and worried about tomorrow and worried about and worried about and worried about. And we start extracting all of that and saying, Oh, no, God doesn't want me to have anything. It's not what he said. He said, trust me and I'll take care of what you need. I know what you need. It's a simple reflection on letting your trust go away from my wallet. Letting my trust go away from my wallet. Not You can't trust my wallet. Not fair. <laughs> Letting—that's Only my kids can do that. Letting your trust go from your wallet. Letting my trust go from my wallet to my Savior. Simple as that. The challenges are hard, aren't they? This new operating system is going to be hard on us and great for us. Then he closes. Focus your life on spiritual things. This is a great final summary. Focus your life on spiritual things and trust God for your temporal needs. Get it? Focus your heart your intentions, your passions on spiritual things. Trust God for your temporal needs. Now, should you all quit your job tomorrow or Monday? Tomorrow, Monday, we'd be better. Your boss will understand it better that way. No. Is God saying we should all just sleep on the couch and be sloths and eat bonbons and wait for him to bring us a check? Mm-mm. He's saying, I know what your needs are, and I'll help with those needs. I'll provide for those needs. But I I need your focus to be on me, to be on spiritual things. And you need to trust me that you can focus your energy on me. Let me show you where this comes up every day. You wake up, you roll out of bed, and before your feet touch the floor, a list starts formulating in your head, right? Right? And the list starts to, cry, starts to creep in, calling you back to work, calling you to the things that need to be done, t- calling you to what you have to get done today, right? And the urgency of that list draws you away from your time with God. Right? It is the practical reality of what it means to live in the modern world. We are drawn so quickly into that list of things that we need. I must. I have to. I gotta. My boss wants. And we skip the most important thing we could do in the day. Stop. Focus our attention on God. Direct our intent for the day toward kingdom opportunities. And then deal with the list. God says, you can trust me. Take the time with me. I will help you with the list. Take the time to focus on me, on the kingdom, on the blessing of those around you, on, on really living a life that's different from everybody else's life. And I will help you with the list. Relax. I know you have a list. I know what you need. I know what the problems are. I know your boss is a creep. I know, I know, I know. Just relax. Trust me. Spend time with me. Focus your energy on kingdom things and kingdom purposes. And I'll help you with the rest of it. What a way to start today. You see, everything around the disciples of Jesus was about religion as an exterior accoutrement. Everything in their lives, everything that they saw was about religion being exterior accoutrements to life. And you could live a double life. You could be focused completely on earthly things. And you could be focused completely on, on, I mean, literally, the scripture says the Pharisees were stealing the houses of widows. You could be focused completely on that kind of behavior. And as long as you did the deed properly every day, you were good. And Jesus says, no, I don't want your hands. I want your heart. I don't want you just to practice little bite-sized deeds every day to try to try to appease me. That's not what this is about. I want you to actually trust me. I want you to give your heart to me every day when you start. I want you to actually trust me. That'll change everything for you. New operating system, new direction, new life. Peaceful. Blessed. Enriching. And most of all transformational. so the last question is a personal one. doesn't meant for anybody but the person in your seat. If this were just my sermon, if this were just Walt's sermon, what if Walt's religious operating system would Jesus have to reinstall? Let's pray. Lord, this is a pretty pretty tough sermon. We wish to become aligned with what it means. To be your disciple. As a people, as a church, we would like our lives to align with these definitions of kingdom purpose. That you've preached the good news of the kingdom to us in these passages that you've told us you want our attention you want our focus you want our hearts you want our trust we choose today to try that we choose to do it but we recognize we're pretty lame at it so we choose to try it And we ask that you would take us by the hand and begin the transformational process that will make it actually possible to give you our attention, our heart, our focus, and our trust. I pray that you'll teach us to do it in the good days so that we have it stored up in the heavenly bank on the hard days. Thank you for caring enough about this little blue dot in the universe to help us get a fresh start. We pray for the covering of your grace, the infilling of your spirit, the transformation of our stony heart. In Jesus' name, amen.